scripture comes to us from the book of John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Good afternoon, everyone. Good to see all of you. Welcome, welcome. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at New Creation Fellowship. And wow, I see a lot of new faces today, and I see a lot of guests. If you're here at the invitation of a friend, coworker, sibling, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for receiving and accepting that invitation, especially if you're here investigating Christianity. We hope and pray that our time together will inform you not only of what we Christians believe, but why we believe what we do. And just in case you want to get a little bit more than what you're going to get out of today's message and today's service, if you want to know a little bit more about the Christian faith, can I point you a resource that is literally by your feet? If you look under the chair in front of you, you'll notice a blue and yellow little booklet that's entitled, Two Ways to Live. If you want a good and concise, clear summary of what we Christians believe and therefore what you would need to believe if you ever chose to become a Christian, this is a good summary for you to look at and to get a better understanding of. Please take it. It is yours, free of charge. It's on our bill. And uh, feel free. And if you have any other further questions that you might have with regard to what you read, please come forward to see me either after service next week. If you do come back or Pastor James, we would love, love, love to talk more about it with you. So without further ado, would you now join me in bowing your heads and pray, asking for the Lord to bless today's message. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this afternoon utterly aware of our poverty, our spiritual poverty, whether you call it spiritual depravity, whether you call it total inability, whatever we label it, Lord, the fact of the matter is, no matter how much we try, no matter how much we attempt to be the people that we wish we could be and the people you've called us to be, Lord, we fail. 
Lord, many of us have come through these doors this afternoon unaware of how much we need your grace. And some of us are very aware. Some of us are guilty. Some of us are guilty since this morning of the things in which we have violated the very callings that you have given to us as fathers, as brothers, as sisters, as, as spouses, as pastors. Lord, many of us are constantly confronted with our utter need of your grace. And Lord, we stand before you this afternoon asking for you to once again to assure us that even though we don't deserve it, even though we are unworthy, Lord, help us to believe once again that indeed you have summoned us here to be recipients of your grace and of your mercy. Lord, would you please bless our time together as we seek to learn more from your word. We pray especially that you would bless this message in spite of the one who is bringing it, or maybe even especially the one who brings it. But we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you guys have been with us all summer, we've been going through a sermon series through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Well, today, we're actually going to take a break from that series in light of a special occasion that we have going on today. You see, right after service, we're going to have something that we call here a ministry fair. Now, some of you are like, a ministry fair? What in the world is a ministry fair? Well, a ministry fair is where we gather all of the various ministries that make up this church, and we display it before all of you. And we do this pretty frequently throughout the year for two reasons. Reason number one is that we want to give those of you who are pretty new to our community a place to get connected into our community. You know, coming here every Sunday, hearing a sermon, participating in, in wonderful worship is not enough to get connected with one another. The primary task of what we're doing right now is so that you could connect to God. It is not really the ideal place, excuse me, to connect with one another, which is why we want to give you guys the opportunity to know where you can connect with one another. And we believe one of the best ways in which you can get further connected and be plugged in to a community of believers is by serving alongside them in the context of ministry. And so that's the first reason why we do this ministry team, so that those of you who are trying to get better plugged in, knowing where to plug in in the context of service. The second reason why we do this ministry fair is to remind those of you who are long veterans of NCF and yet not serving, a reminder of your duty to God, not to me, not to this church, but to God of you serving in the body of Christ. You know, the Bible gives us many different metaphors to describe the church, but one recurring metaphor you see over and over is this idea of the church being the body of Christ. If you ever read through the letters of Paul, one of the frequent ways in which he describes the local church is that he refers to it as the body of Christ. And so by applying that metaphor, you could think of it this way. The ministries that make up the church, the body of Christ, they're like the vital organs that bring vitality and health in the church, which means if you are a follower of Jesus and you claim the name of Christ, if you claim the hope of the gospel for yourself and yet you are not serving, that means you are not functioning in the capacity in which God has called you to serve. Instead, you are functioning more like a parasite or you're functioning more like a cancer where you're just sucking out the resources and all the vitality of the church without contributing in any way, right? And so in a way to challenge you and to encourage you into not being cancerous, We want to have this ministry fair to remind you of the obligation that we all have as Christ followers to serve and to build and to contribute to the overall health and well-being of the body of Christ. So, with all that in mind, 
let's now get into the sermon. Three things I want to share with you this afternoon as it pertains to this idea of serving, okay? Three things. Number one, what biblical serving looks like. Number two, what biblical serving requires. And finally, what biblical serving points to, okay? What it looks like, what it requires, and what it points to. Let's jump right in, shall we? Number one, what biblical serving looks like. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. When President John F. Kennedy echoed those words in his inaugural speech, there was a thunderous applause in response to those memorable words. And many people today say that those words really embody how our culture really values service in the way that our culture understands service. In our culture today, there is a high net worth. There is a high cultural worth when it comes to service. There is this dignity, this value, this honor, this valor that's attached to what our culture defines as quote-unquote service. So, for example, if you are in the military, people honor you as rightfully so because of your quote-unquote service to the country. Uh, Many Christmases, every year, CEOs from all across the world decide that they want to participate in some sort of community service, maybe serving in a soup kitchen in the city because they feel there is some dignity, some honor attached in this context of serving that even their high-paying salaries don't provide them. Or if you are a student trying to get into a certain school or if you're trying to get into a certain scholarship, many of these schools, many of these scholarships require people to have a certain number of hours of community service because those organizations understand that when people are serving, when they make a habit of serving, there's a certain valor, honor attached that they want in their candidates or in their potential students. In our culture today, there is a high value attached, a high dignity, a high nobility when people are serving others. And yet, when you read our passage today, which is the classic text of Christian service, Not once do you see any sort of picture of honor. You don't see any idea of valor or dignity attached to it. Here we see a picture of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Do you find any honor in that? How many of you guys would find any dignity in promoting and showing on Facebook that you've been washing people's feet? Probably not many of us, right? The duty, the honor, the valor, the, 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 the wonderful glory that's attached to service that is so prevalent in our culture is obviously missing as Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples. Now, it's interesting. When you and I read this story and when we imagine this picture of Jesus washing feet, it just weirds us out, doesn't it? I mean, how would you feel if someone came up to you, maybe even Jesus, and he said, hey, I want to wash your feet? <laughs> Be honest. It would kind of creep you out. It would be kind of weird. But if you were one of the original disciples of Jesus, you would not feel weird. You'd actually feel worse. You would feel scandalized by the idea of Jesus coming up to you and wanting to wash your feet. Let me explain why. You see, in the ancient Jewish culture, washing someone's feet was a cultural norm. It was something that was practiced very often in the ancient world. In fact, you read about it in the Old Testament itself. For example, Genesis Genesis, excuse me, I can't talk this afternoon. Genesis 18, we read an interesting story where Abraham, the famous patriarch, encounters three messengers of God. Take a listen to this encounter and what Abraham said to these three men. Starting in verse 1 of Genesis 18, we read, If I, Abraham, have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. 
Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Now, in this passage, Abraham has just invited these messengers of God into his home as an act of hospitality. Here's something that you need to understand. In the ancient Near Eastern world, which is the world that Abraham came out of, there was no greater honor, there was no greater glory that a person could receive, humanly speaking, than being invited by someone powerful, a patriarch, which is what Abraham was. If to be invited, right, by a very popular, famous, wealthy person, a patriarch in the days, like Abraham, to be invited into his home and to have a meal with him, to have hospitality shared with him to where he even allows you to, to recline and to lodge in his place, that was the greatest honor of all. But here's the problem. Back in the ancient world, people did not eat off of high tables and sit on high chairs where there was considerable distance between your neighbor's feet and your mouth. You see, back in the ancient world, people ate on the floor. They would typically lay out mats in a circular fashion so they can promote dialogue, and they would lie down on their side, and they would eat as they're conversing, which means your neighbor's feet would literally be inches away from you and your food. And when you consider the fact that people back then didn't wear shoes or socks, Right? They wore open-toe shoes on open dirt roads 24-7, and they didn't have multiple pairs where they could air them out. You know, people just had one pair of shoes, they wore them out, and then you get a new one. You can imagine how disgusting that could be in that kind of situation. Can you imagine the kind of stench that people would bring inside a home as a guest, right? And as the host is trying to welcome this person, and then the distraction of that of that kind of situation. I mean, can you imagine you smell the aroma of succulent food only to have it rudely interrupted by someone's disgusting toe cheese right in front of your face? Clearly, in order for a person, a guest, to feel really welcome, to be really hospitalized by their host, there has to be something done to get rid of the offensive nature of the guest. Someone had to be willing to do the degrading work of washing the guest's feet. Here's where it gets a little complicated. Even though foot washing was considered acceptable, even though it was a common practice, it still didn't erase uh, how degrading and how humiliating it was. You know, just because something is common, just because something is done frequently doesn't mean that it negates the inherent humiliating, degrading act that is attached to it. This is why the only people who washed feet were slaves. People didn't wash their own feet, right? People in your own family didn't even wash your own feet. It was slaves. It was the task of slaves to wash feet. And particularly, it was slaves who were conquered most frequently in the time of war. Typically, if you were a rich person and you were in battle, the person who ended up washing your feet was the person that you were fighting on the battlefield and who you defeated. You see, they reserved the most degrading act of humiliation of service to your enemy who you defeated on the battlefield because it was a constant reminder as they wash your nasty feet of how you have conquered them, how you have humiliated them. You see, there's something about the idea of washing feet in that context that was utterly, utterly humiliating. No dignity, no honor, and yet it's this kind of service that Jesus uses to express the kind of service that he wants us to display towards one another. He displays it towards his disciples as his way of saying, you see what I just did? You need to do that for one another. Jesus is making the point here 
that Christian service is not supposed to be a platform for you to get applause, to you get glory, so that people would give you accolades and admire you. No, biblical Christian service is just that. It is service. It's not a way so that people can look up to you. It's not a way so that people can say, wow, look how amazing you are. It is not a way for you to get high esteem and to pat yourself on the back or for you to distinguish yourself in the church. No, true Christian service is not about you. It's not about how good you look and how well you're admired. In fact, it can be quite the opposite. True Christian service in many ways can be beneath you. It can be beneath your skill set. It can be beneath your educational level. It can be beneath you in such a way that it's almost embarrassing to what you are doing. And yet, for that very reason, when you serve in that way, other people get encouraged. Other people get honored. Other people get lifted up. Other people get blessed. A few years ago, the Wall Street Journal did an interesting article in light of the death of Manute Bull. Manute Bull, back in, uh, Manute Bull, the famous NBA player, died about five years ago. And a little after his death, a writer from the Wall Street Journal profiled Manute Bull's life. And I think it is so amazing when you read the kind of life that Manute Bull lived because I think it's a stellar example to the kind of service that God calls us to do. Let's have the article up here. Let me, let me read it to you. <clears throat> Bull... A Christian Sudanese immigrant believed his life was a gift from God to be used in the service of others. As he put it to the Sports Illustrated in 2004, quote, God guided me to America and gave me a good job, but he also gave me a heart so I would look back, end quote. He was not blessed, however, with great athletic gifts. As a center for the Washington Bullets, Bull was more spectacle than superstar. At 7 feet, 7 inches tall, and 225 pounds, he was both the tallest and thinnest player in the league. He averaged a mere 2.6 points per game over the course of his career, though he was a successful shot blocker given that he towered over most NBA players. Bull reportedly gave most of his fortune, estimated at $6 million, to aid Sudanese refugees. As one Twitter feed aptly put it, quote, most NBA cats go broke on cars, jewelries, and groupies. Manute Bull went broke building hospitals, end quote. When his fortune dried up, Bull raised more money for charity by doing what most athletes would find humiliating. He turned himself into a humorous spectacle. Bull was hired, for example, as a horse jockey, hockey player, and celebrity boxer. Some Americans simply found amusement in the absurdity of him on horse or skates. Bull agreed to be a clown, but he was not willing to be mocked for his own personal gains as so many reality television stars are. Bull let himself be ridiculed on behalf of suffering strangers in the Sudan. He was a fool for Christ, end quote. True Christian service is willing to go so far as to say, if what I do humiliates me so that it can lift you up, so be it. Because true Christian service is not like trying to make it in the city. It's not so that I can be famous. It's not so that I can get people to look at me. It's not so that I can be admired. It's so that you can be blessed, you can be honored, you can be served, and you can be encouraged. That is what true Christian service is, to the point where you say, I am willing to be humiliated for the sake of you being honored and glorified. Now, if that sounds hard, Jesus says, I'm sorry, I'm not done, because there's something else that true Christian service requires. And this leads me to my next point, what true biblical serving requires. The events that are recorded that we just read in John 13 are from the last night that Jesus walked on this earth. A couple hours after these recorded words, Jesus would be betrayed, he would be arrested, he would be beaten, and ultimately he would kill. He would be killed, excuse me. 
But here's the thing. Jesus knew exactly all of this was coming his way. Listen again to what it says in verse 1. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world. Here we gain some incredible insight to what true Christian service requires. Think about it. Jesus knows that he has very limited time. Time is not on his side. And in that pressure of limited time, what emerges? His true priority, what he considers to be the most important thing to which he could spend the last waking hours of his life. And what does he do? He serves. And if it is true that Jesus says that he is our king and we are to follow him as our king, that means the greatest priority that you should have, even when you don't have time, is service as well. I know many of you, many of you are constantly lamenting about how little time you have. You feel like you have very limited time. You keep saying, Pastor, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. Yeah, I get it. You work 60, 70 hours a week. Some of you are in school full time and you're working part time. Some of you feel like you barely have time to do the things that even give you life, like spending time with your friends and your family. I get it. And so when you hear a pastor like me coming up here today saying you need to serve more, I can understand why it irritates you. I can understand why it even angers you. I can understand why it annoys you. I get it. And yet it is that very annoyance, it's that very anger that Jesus is trying to challenge here in this text. Because here's the thing, folks, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much talent you have. It doesn't matter what kind of opportunities are uniquely opening up for you. The fact of the matter is no one in here has unlimited time. We are all on limited time. We don't have time on our side, which means you have to really consider and discriminate what your priorities are. But here's the thing. None of us have to really be taught what our priorities are, do we? Here's an interesting experiment that you can do sometimes. Try doing a time log. You guys know what a time log is? It's basically where you map out every hour in the day and of the whole week, and you write out what you spend every hour on, every half hour on. It's going to be illuminating. Many of us, just like with our money, don't know what we do with our time. We just think, oh, just like I don't have enough money, I don't have enough time. Try it. We lament about how busy we are. We don't have time to do the things that we wish we could do. And yet if you look at that time log, I guarantee all the things that you really, really want to do will be there. Because where your heart is, your treasure is, like your money, like your time. There is no better way to figure out what you truly value, what you truly prioritize, than how you spend your time. Because what you prioritize will always be in your time. Even as as busy as you are, somehow, some way, we always find some time in our busy schedule to do the things that we prioritize. And Jesus is saying, make sure that your greatest priority is not entertainment, it's not hanging out with your friends so you can party. Make sure it's serving. Why? Because serving is the only thing That has eternal value. Hear me when I say this, folks. When you die, you will not be able to take your money with you, your house with you, your car with you, your diplomas with you. Those don't have eternal value. The only things that you will be able to take with you into eternity are the people in which you've invested in so that they can understand, so that they can receive the gospel, grow in the gospel, and join you in eternity with them. Those are the only things that will last into eternity. And Jesus is saying, do not squander the limited time that you have because time is not on your side. 
Make sure that you don't squander it on things that will not last into eternity. Make sure that you make sure, make sure that you make sure that you are investing into eternity, into things that will last. And the best way to do that is by cultivating relationships, investing in people in the context of service. Now, please don't misunderstand with what I am saying here. Please don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. I am not saying, and Jesus is not saying, that you need to spend every available time that you have when you're not working, every vacation time, every holiday time, here at church, working at church, serving in the ministries of the church, and you should just work, 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 work as a workhorse. That is not what I'm saying. In fact, that is not what Jesus is saying, and that is not what even Jesus demands. Look again at what Peter is demanding of Jesus in verse 9. When he finally realized that Jesus is going to wash his feet, what does he say, say to Jesus? Oh, Lord, if you're going to wash my feet, can you go the extra mile? Can you, you know, wash my head and wash my hands? Can you serve in addition to what you were planning to serve? And what does Jesus say? No. Right? Jesus is not about advocating this constant serving in the context where that's all you do. You see, biblical serving is not about how much you serve. Biblical serving is about how you view life. One more time. Biblical serving is not how much you serve. Biblical serving is how you view life. If you view life as one big competition where it's every man for himself to where the only thing that you can count on is yourself and living a life to which you want to live in comfort, of course, getting into the best schools, of course, getting the best jobs, of course, making the most amount of money, of course, being as comfortable as you want to be are going to be your greatest priority because the underlying assumption is this world is up for grabs. And if I don't do the effort of getting my fair share, then I am lost, right? And so all of your time is consumed worrying about putting extra time in work, in school, all so that you can reach this consumeristic goal. And if you have time left over, if after I've done my work, after I've gone on vacation, after I've done all these major purchases, then maybe, maybe I'll serve. Maybe. But if you view reality the way God wants you to view it, where Jesus is your king, you are his servant, service all of a sudden takes on a priority that never was a priority before. Why? Because when Jesus is your king, you know that he's the one who promises to provide for you, not your education, not your job. He, as your king, is the one who promises to protect you, not your portfolio, not the liquidity of your finances. He is the one who says, you are part of me, I am part of you, we are one family. Therefore, what I value is what you value, what I do is what you do. We are in it together for the glory of God, for the expansion of his kingdom. And the centerpiece of what his kingdom is about is blessing the world through service. You are called to serve like your serving king. But here's the thing. You don't just serve in the church. You serve as the church, which means you serve other people besides the people within the walls of the church. You serve your neighbor. You serve your workmates. You serve your family members. Why? Because Jesus is not just the king of the church. He is the king of the world. And his jurisdiction is boundless, which means everyone is a recipient of his serving blessings of love, which means he calls you, Christian, to make sure that you're doing your part in serving not only the saints, but also through serving the saints, equipping them to go out to serve the world, family members, workmates, neighbors, the city, 
Service is the centerpiece of the kingdom of God. But here's the thing. The only way you're ever going to make serving a priority is if you know without a shadow of a doubt that the king who calls you to serve loves you as deeply as he says he does. Listen again to what he says in the latter half of verse 1. Jesus says, excuse me, John writes, Having loved his own who were in the world, he, Jesus, now showed them the full extent of his love. When Jesus is asking you to serve, what he's really asking you is this. Believe that my love is there for you. Not there for you generically. Not there because you're just a member of his kingdom. You know, the, the, the nameless number of people as part of the kingdom of God. No, but he loves you uniquely, specially, exclusively in a way that he doesn't love anyone else. That he loves you. Then you will find the paradigm shift to where service takes on a new role and a new value. Have confidence, Jesus says, that my love protects you more than your bank account. Have faith that my love gives you more status and honor than a certain job or a certain title. Have hope that my love is your greatest asset, not your house, not your properties, not your financial portfolio, but my love is the way in which you find hope and peace and purpose and value in this world. That is what Jesus is saying. And if you have that confidence in the love of Christ for you, you will do what he loves to do. You will serve for the sake of the world, even if it comes at great cost to you. Some of you are hearing just like, well, how exactly, Pastor? How exactly can I acquire this, this assurance, this confidence that my Jesus loves me the way you claim he does? The answer leads me to my final point, what serving points to. One of the strangest things that we notice as we study this passage It's not simply that Jesus washes his disciples' feet, but when he decides to wash the disciples' feet. In verse 2, it says that as the meal was being served, as it was in process of being laid at the ground for the disciples' eat, then is when Jesus decided to wash their feet. Which is like, why? (laughs) Wouldn't it make more sense for the disciples to first get their feet washed, and then they can proceed with the meal? And yet, that's not what the text tells us. The text tells us that Jesus washed the feet of his disciples after the meal was already underway, while the meal was already being set. The likelihood is is that the disciples already had their feet washed for this particular meal. So why is Jesus almost redundantly re-washing the disciples' feet? Does that make sense to you? The only possible explanation is he's preparing them for another meal. See, this meal is already set. Their feet has already been washed. But Jesus feels the need to remind them, hey, guys, there is another meal I need to prepare you for. Hence, I am washing your feet. And hence, when you look at the next chapter, starting in verse 1, that's exactly what Jesus says. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, we read, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. From this text, we see and we fully understand why Jesus rewashed his disciples' feet. Why? Go back to what I said earlier in my first point. In ancient Jewish culture, the highest honor of all was being invited to someone powerful, to someone wealthy, into their home to share a meal, to lodge with them. And Jesus is saying, that is what I'm going to do for you right now. By washing your feet, this is my personal invitation for you 
for you to come and to dine with me and my Father and to lodge with me forever and ever for all eternity. But here's the thing. Just like a normal host has to get rid of the offensive nature of the guests represented by their stinky feet, Jesus has to do something to deal with the offensive nature that is offensive to him and to his Father, and that is what? Our sins, right? Jesus, in order to embrace us with the kind of hospitality that he wants to give us, first has to deal with the offensive stench that we emanate as we go before a holy God, which is your sin, my sin, our sin, the sins of the world. And so that is exactly what Jesus is symbolizing by washing their feet. He is saying, I'm about to do something, guys, that this ceremony represents. I am going to go to the cross as your substitute, and I am going to get rid of everything that is offensive about you in the presence of my Father. I'm going to wash away everything that is offensive about you, not with water, but with my blood. That's what the gospel teaches us over and over again. And that is the hope for those who trust in Christ by turning away from their sins and looking to Christ as their king. That's the hope that you and I have. And guess what, brothers and sisters? That is the hope that we are to point to when we serve one another. Do you know why Jesus wants us to almost be humiliated when we serve each other in the context of the church? Because he wants us through our service to emulate and to shadow the utter humiliation of Christ. When I serve you as your pastor, what I'm hoping for is not for you to admire me, but hopefully how you admire the one that I am trying to emulate, the one who was humiliated, the one who suffered on your behalf so that you could have the hope of looking forward to, of seeing God face to face, of being reminded that you have table fellowship with this God in the age to come. That is the kind of encouragement that you are to give off as you serve one another in this church, as you serve your neighbors outside of the church. When you go out and you serve your neighborhood, when you serve the poor, when you serve the needy, when you serve those who need Christ, You are inviting them to come to the king's table. You are inviting them for them to receive the invitation of what the gospel is inviting all of us to do, which is to taste and see that the Lord is good. Service is to point to the ultimate servant. Our service in the church, in the world, is to show the one who humbled himself the most and it was humiliated the most so that you and I and everyone else could be glorified and lifted up. That's what the gospel teaches us. This is the hope that we are to offer. This is the hope that we are to promote. And so, with that said, let me ask you, brothers and sisters, are you serving like your king? Are you exercising the gifts that God has given you to build up the body of Christ so that this body will be equipped to go out and be a blessing to the world? You know, I don't want to hear this whole nonsense about, oh, you know, pastor, I can't serve because I'm just not talented. I'm not gifted to serve. Wrong. If you are a genuine follower of Jesus, God made sure he gave you a gift. You have a gift. Maybe it's untapped. Maybe it's undiscovered. But you have a gift. God promises that if you are born again, you are also gifted. Let me ask you, do you think some of the most talented, most gifted athletes and artists woke up one morning and discovered that they were just gifted? How do these people discover that they're talented? They just start doing things, right? And as they do it, like, hey, I can actually throw a ball pretty fast. Wow, I'm pretty good at kicking that person in the face. Wow, I'm pretty good at making a meal. 
It wasn't that they just waited and say, oh, heavens above, what am I talented at? Typically, it was because of the urging of mom or dad or maybe because they just wanted to hang out with a certain girl or a boy. And in that process, they discovered, oh, I'm actually good at soccer. I'm actually good at playing guitar. It comes when you just start doing things. Don't be on your butt say, oh, I'm not gifted. I'm not talented. That's an excuse. And it's even an unjustifiable excuse when we have days like this, when we have a ministry fair downstairs where you can see and try out what kind of ministries are you good at? What are some of the things that God has gifted you in? Don't give me that nonsense about, oh, I'm just not gifted. God has called you to be like him. Would he really call you to do something that you are going to fail at? God has called you to serve just like him. And just as he depended on his father to give him the gifts he needs to be our savior, he will call you to have the gifts that you need to build up this body, to equip this body, to serve this city, and to bless the world. And so my challenge to you is, are you going to obey and follow through? All you need to do is go downstairs and try it out. So why don't we get to that now? But first, let's pray. Father, we think about all the things that we complain about in our lives, of what's missing, of what's lacking, or what we have to do, or how busy we are. And Father, as we look back, we wonder, are any of these things that we worry about, any of the things that we preoccupy our limited time with, are any of these going to have eternal value? Father, the honest truth of the matter is, probably not. Father, I pray that none of us in here will fall into the tragedy of a saint who is on his deathbed only to know that he's going into heaven completely naked because he has built his kingdom on shifting sand. To be shamed amongst the saints because they have nothing to which carry over into eternity because they have squandered their limited time on things that have no eternal value. Father, would you spare us of such folly and would you enable us to truly prioritize what you've prioritized, Lord, in your limited time here on this earth. Would you give us the grace to move forward in faith? And may you use us, Holy Spirit, with the gifts that you've empowered us with to discover what they are as we serve so that we can build each other up, so that we can go out into the world and be a powerful force of blessing for the furtherance of your kingdom and for the glory of your name and not for our own pride, not for our own comfort. Oh, God, would you help us to live this out, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to give the Lord his tithes and our offer. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give. But to our members, let's give to God what's rightfully his. Let's give to him his tithes and our offerings.